All right, and we are live. All right, so we are joined, Chris and Noah here, and we are joined with uh, Rory over in uh, Vancouver. Rory, hey thanks guys. for joining us, man. How are you? I'm doing good. I had elbow surgery about four days ago, so I'm on some painkillers, and I just woke up, so hopefully I don't completely shit the bed with this talk. <laughs> so the podcast is going to be extra awesome. Man. Yeah, like, yeah, it's going to be completely truthful. I'm going to sink myself. <laughs> what? Um, how's the swelling on the elbow and stuff? Honestly, I... I'm surprised at how much like range of motion I have. Like it's a bit of swelling. I guess there's a bit of blood that got through the dressing at first, but I got full range of motion. I just can't really lift anything heavy right now. But I wasn't sure if I'd be able to like even like masturbate or uh, <laughs> to do anything like I mean, with this arm. You just do the stranger instead, right? Like yeah, I wasn't really looking forward to that. But I'm surprised <laughs> that I'm able to play video games. I could even play guitar a little bit with it without just with some minor. Like, what did you have pain. done? So uh, I was just having some bone fragments removed from my arm and a bone spur on the oleocranon. So it was like injuries from when I was a kid, I think from track and field. And so now that I'm getting to the ripe old age of 31, my body's starting to fall apart. And uh, yeah, so this was an elective surgery that hopefully is going to help me be able to take better care of myself, uh, getting into physical fitness wise. Cool, man. And what uh, what's your video game of choice now for the uh, rehab? Right now, it's been Call of Duty Modern Warfare. Oh, you're so, so dude. That's, so, know, that's like what everyone's know, doing. That, that's, so many there's nothing unique there. <laughs> uh, I mean, I'm really into role playing games, but Cyberpunk 2077 kind of left something to be desired because it launched horribly. So I didn't get to spend as much time on that. And then Destiny 2 is a game that I keep circling back to every once in a while, but they go through different content lows. So uh call of duty right now unfortunately i've just been hitting like god mode on it and it's been extremely fun because my team we just shred everybody <laughs> that's awesome but, dude yeah i know it's super uh, uh, everyone <laughs> plays call of duty right now it's one of the things like i have mixed feelings about video games because i was a big i've been a big video game player like all my life but then like i feel like i don't have time and video games are really good at passing time it's a so waste of time, i feel guilty sure. when i'm like trying to be productive however in certain situations like rehabbing an injury or forced rest, anything like that, it's like, this is beautiful for this, you know? Yeah, I got about 24 days logged on Call of Duty right now. I had about 20, 2,400 hours logged on Destiny 1, and I got about 1,200 hours on Destiny 2. So, like, once I start to factor in how many hours of my life I've dedicated to video games, like, I can do 17-hour game sessions and... Uh, yeah, it's amazing that I've I have a wife and have a career and somewhat doing well at jujitsu because video games I, I love them I play them a lot. Seventeen hour sessions. Yeah, I don't do that much anymore unless <laughs> like, like it's like a very specific like a Destiny raid where there's like a six man team to take on like some massive uh, quest thing. But most of the time, it's more reasonable like ten hours. Oh yeah. Well, now yeah, did yeah. you ever? Did you ever? Uh... I feel like it's, it, you had to have because you said you played role playing games. Like, how many days have you logged playing uh, World of Warcraft? Honestly, I've never actually played World of Warcraft. Really? Because I didn't. I didn't play PC until about the last year or two. So uh, I don't. So much know better, if isn't World it? of Warcraft was on console at all. I don't think it was. Yeah, it's way better. It took a mm. lot of getting used to with keyboard and mouse. But as I started getting into 
more of being an online creator with YouTube and getting into video editing and working on the website with my instructor, bgdconcepts.net, I've been building up my computer rig for video editing. And so I had to try video games once it got strong enough. And uh, yeah, it's been amazing. And I, I don't think I can go back to consoles at this point. That's badass, man. So uh, my knowledge, and I think Chris and I were talking about this before, we both like, you came onto our radar, I think, uh, the same way a lot of people did, and, and you've even said this, I think, in other interviews, where that breakdown of the Gordon Ryan passing, where yeah. that sort of like rose you to, to, to fame, so to speak, in the, in the jiu-jitsu circles. My, my opening question for you is, um, your approach to content, both on Instagram and YouTube, is markedly different from other jiu-jitsu practitioners, you know, in, in cyberspace, so to speak. What um, what were the factors and thought process behind settling on the themes and types of content that you consistently put out and sort of, you know, for lack of a better term, the branding you do with what you're trying to put out there content-wise? Okay, so for one, I think YouTube is really the only thing that I take seriously and making sure that I have, like, a consistent branding with and I want to release, like, really good content with. Instagram has been just kind of like a more personal avenue for me where I sometimes will release decent content that I've created for YouTube on it if it wor works. But otherwise, like half the posts I have on there are like of my cats because obviously I love my cats. So it's like if someone wants just strictly like the conceptual, somewhat scientific uh, approach to Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, my Instagram's not really the, the source for that. But uh, when it came to looking at trying to create an online brand and I didn't even know how serious it was going to become at the time. There's obviously the goals, but I had learned under my instructor, Rob Bernacki, who has become quite renowned around the world for a conceptual approach to Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, teaching uh, the science behind uh, Jiu Jitsu and teaching a universal approach of concepts that tie into every single technique that there is uh, as vast and as complicated as Jiu Jitsu is to help people understand a kind of a grounding point. And so that was obviously something I became super used to like that. It's a similar way that I like to try and approach jujitsu even before I trained with Rob. It just obviously I didn't have anything really besides the Ryan Hall DVDs. Ryan Hall was probably doing like the best job at the time, uh, like 10 years ago at being able to teach that kind of approach. And I loved it. And so it was trying to think of what can I bring, especially cause I was a brown belt at the time when I started filming stuff. And when I filmed the Gordon Ryan guard passing series where what can I do that's slightly different and have my own voice? And obviously that conceptual approach and a approach linked to like talking about the physics behind jujitsu and the techniques was something that other people weren't doing. Because when you have world champions teaching their games and stuff like that, like who the fuck is Rory Van Vliet and why should I be listening to him? You have to have a different voice. And so that's something that's important for any creator is figuring out what they're going to try to do that's within this especially right now with the pandemic where it's become oversaturated in the sense that everybody is trying to start a YouTube channel or posting stuff on Instagram or everyone's releasing instructionals. What can I do that's slightly different? And so that was talking about like the concepts of alignment based posture, structure, frames and levers, momentum, center of gravity, stuff like that, that can anyone that wants to be a little more nerdy with jujitsu and start learning more of the physics behind it they can get an understanding of that, whether it's just my, uh, the videos where I'm teaching techniques like the Gordon Ryan stuff, where 
I'm just trying to give the overall like conceptual approach of what's going on to even my uh, my little passion projects, the science behind your jujitsu videos, where I actually do break down uh, talking about physics of say center of gravity, balance and stability, or force vectors and inertia, etc. Where it can start to get very complicated, because that was always stuff that I wanted to watch. Now, what is uh, what is your actual background? Like, what did you study in school? Yeah, because I mean, to even begin approaching it, saying like the physics kind of like focus, like so. Yeah, I don't actually have any kind of background with science. Uh, for school in high school, I was always very interested in physics over the other sciences. Chemistry never made any goddamn sense to me, and uh, so I always enjoyed physics. But when I went to school, I actually was I did criminology and I got a diploma in that because I'm a corrections officer. So it's a totally different field than what I'm used to uh, when it comes to like what I'm trying to accomplish within Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, but I always had such an interest with it. And because Rob was already talking about these terms and already teaching us this, to me, it just made a lot of sense to just really start diving more into that. So when I started working on my first Science Behind Your Jiu-Jitsu video, where I talked about center of gravity, stability, and balance, that's when I started diving back into the internet rabbit hole of studying the physics terminology again, because now... As a creator, if I'm putting something out there, it's out there permanently and it's out there to be judged and either loved or bashed and critiqued. And there's definitely like right and wrong, especially when we're talking about physics. So uh, making sure that I was cross-referencing multiple sources of information, reading actual good information and not just studying like bullshit articles on things, which in physics doesn't really, uh, it's not really a problem. And then also like talking to, fortunately, through our subscriber base, whether it's YouTube or with the online academy, we have engineers that are naturally drawn to jiu-jitsu as well. So I have guys that I'm able to show the videos first and then they can help kind of correct where I might be missing a bit on the terms or that they would have liked to see me go a little bit further on. And so, yeah, it's once that's where I say it's, it's kind of just a passion project. I don't have a background in it, but... I'm not stupid as much as I hopefully like to think so. And so I try to study the best I can and also just make sure that I surround myself with smarter people that can help make sure that I'm putting out good content so that no one's being led astray down uh, with the wrong terms or anything like that. Now, why why do you think there is such a void when it comes to jujitsu being described in the terms that you describe it or the Ryan Hall. I, I'm, I'm actually, it's funny you brought up Ryan Hall cause I was going to bring him up and you, you, you beat me to the punch as somebody that explains a lot of the why from a mechanical point of view, you know, um, I've said that like, you know, I think Dan Hurst kind of there in his material along with the guys from his squad. But a lot of times they kind of, it, this is my opinion, like wave their hands at some point and say the opponent will find it incredibly difficult well, why is it incredibly difficult? You know what I mean? So yeah. those are the trade secrets. Yeah, the well, yeah. you know I mean? <laughs> point like, is, my point is, it's like, and outside of, you know, you, uh, you know, um, Ryan Hall and and the death squad to some degree, like, why do you think there's, there's way more practitioners that are doing the three techniques of class sort of deal and just showing technique for technique's sake. Why do you think that is the case? And there's not this more, Let's unify this behind principles and and a theory so that if students understand theory, they don't need to know specific techniques in order to do good jujitsu. There's a few things. One, there's just a difference of 
pedagogy is a skill itself. So we're looking at the actual skill of being a teacher. And so that's something where we see the difference of high level athletes, the people that can do those techniques, but that does, that does not mean that they're going to necessarily be good at conveying that information, passing that information down to students. Actually, being a competent instructor is a skill in itself that you need to work on. And with that, you also need to be able to, in the same way we would as white belts in jujitsu, you need to be able to release that ego to an extent and recognize that you have shortcomings that you need to work on. And so by the time people usually actually start to get into instructing, that's usually, I mean, some people might get started earlier at like blue or purple helping out with classes, but especially when we're looking at brown and black, you're looking at people that are now higher level practitioners or even considered full on experts that then might not be very good at teaching yet. But I don't know about you guys, but I have seen many people at these higher levels that are really good at jujitsu and they are actually good at jujitsu, but for them to admit that they're not also good at teaching and that they have to work on those skills, it's a, it's a hurdle that a lot of people have a problem with. And I mean, it is just natural ego at that point. You are good at something. And so you should be good at being able to pass that information on to a student. But when we're looking at communication, when we're looking at being able to break down everything conceptually and being able to present that information to students, being able to follow up with them, that's not easy to do. Then also the conceptual approach to Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, like how Ryan Hall teaches it, how my instructor, Robert Naki teaches it, how John Danaher teaches it, all like very similar, but they still have some of their own terminology and uh, slightly different paths that they like to go with it. And so there's someone, what someone will be naturally attracted to any of those guys with their approach to jujitsu where it, not everyone teaches it like that. And that is still within like the scheme of how martial arts have been taught and how Brazilian jiu-jitsu has been taught. It's a bit newer that there are a lot of people that haven't learned from this kind of style. So for me with the conceptual approach, Ryan Hall was where I first started when I was training some other martial arts and I was starting to get into submission-based grappling, Nugi. And then when I trained the first time with Rob Bernacki, he was just quoting stuff that sounded exactly like Ryan Hall. And I was like, holy crap, that sounds just like how Ryan Hall teaches the triangle choke because I've memorized his DVDs. And Rob's like, yeah, I've, I really like Ryan Hall. I've trained with him and I, I've his overall universal concept of like alignment and stuff like that really came from Ryan Hall and then extrapolating on that further. And so it already fit into the mindset that I wanted, my approach that I wanted to Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. And then I've been learning that for the last eight years as my cat's now scratching the post right beside me. And so not that you have to have a conceptual approach to Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Obviously, I think that it's the the best way to learn uh, techniques and to uh, when we're looking at like cognitive learning strategies, but not everyone learns that way. And then not everyone can really, I don't want to say learn that way, but there are a lot of dumb people in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, frankly. Like, and we've seen that even with the pandemic here with uh, COVID-19, which sees some of the best guys at the highest level that are amazing at beating the shit out of other full-grown men or women and controlling a human body and being able to submit them with joint locks or strangulations. But that does not mean that they are good at anything else. And that's just within any field that you're looking at. It does not mean that uh, somebody is going to be naturally good in other areas. And so especially when I think we start to look at fighting, which can be 
considered more barbaric out of the things that we can do with our lives. Uh, learn to control another person. It's going to naturally attract certain kinds of people. And that, while I think jujitsu will technically will attract more nerdy people, people that are going to be more inclined to learn like a scientific approach or to uh, nerd out and learn different paths and say something like we see in wrestling because of the unathletic capabilities that we can see people use with different guards and stuff like that and still be successful off their back. And it's not necessarily just brute force colliding into each other with something like wrestling. There's still a lot of stupid people. And so with that, there's so many different things that once you take all these different factors, it's not that surprising to me that with how new the conceptual approach is and with the kind of people that we have within Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu that we're not seeing a lot of that. And I still don't think even with like how say John Danaher is obviously the most popular and most well-known to this while he's going to have his students that are going to be teaching this approach and those students will continue to teach on more students. And we're going to see uh, a group that continues to grow and we're going to see it become a little more mainstream. I still don't think a conceptual approach like that is going to be overtaking jujitsu. And even if it does try to, I think it's going to become a little more watered down. and It's not going to be done very well. Now, do you think with regard to on, on like tangentially, like when it comes to belts, do you think the ability for a practitioner to communicate the techniques that he or her does, is that something that should be part of a belt test or not belt test, but the criteria for promoting someone to brown or to black like is the ability to convey part of it or is it just strictly athletic performance on the mat in your opinion yeah i rob and i like to have that as part of like the the reason for people being promoted now once again it really comes down to what an individual's goals are and so those goals can change and that's something that we try and be mindful of but if someone is just crushing at a competition and they just won purple belt worlds or they grand slammed and they're destroying everybody but they can't teach that doesn't mean that it's not time to promote them at that point because if they're going to be demonstrating that they can wreck all the purple belts and that it's time for brown belt at a technical level then it's time for them at that and maybe they're not interested at in trying to be a teacher at that point and so promoting them to brown or even black is normal but then there has to just be that talk and that's something that we try and be mindful of with all the students that it's like hey if you're not interested in being a teacher right now you very well might be later because we time is against us and everyone eventually as we see the competitors they will start to move on into teaching if they still want to have a role within brazilian jiu-jitsu once they've retired from competition and so it's something you want to start thinking about and if you are going to start trying to teach then you have to release your ego and you have to think about the fact that it's like you're kind of like a white belt again in a certain extent to a certain extent where you're going to be this black belt or brown belt in brazilian jiu-jitsu but you got to just revisit and go through like a checklist of your communication skills and what you're going to look at for curriculum and how you're uh trying to teach the techniques and how you're following up with students and getting feedback and in the same way that we get used to taking feedback as jujitsu practitioners with our technique i think while people's egos get in the way i think it should be a pretty normal process for that and i i think some people are going to be very good at that and as long as we just look at it as a making sure that it's it's okay to accept that 
to admit that you're not the best instructor and that that does not take away from your skills as a jiu-jitsu practitioner, then it should be relatively easy to do so. But for Rob and I, we usually, with our purple belts, upwards to around brown belts, that's where we start getting them to help with teaching the classes. And we have kind of like methods of which we try and develop them as instructors and just at least getting them used to that idea, whether it's them just helping us out with uh, answering questions of students after I've taught like a technique and we're just going around helping them as they drill or actually getting them prepared to try and do a presentation, like teaching the technique to an actual group, because that's a whole, like getting used to public speaking in front of people is something that's uh, quite uncomfortable for people, depending on their personality and uh, providing feedback with them with that. So it comes down to, cause we have some guys that aren't really into gi. We have some guys that aren't really into no gi. We have guys that don't really think about wanting to be a teacher right now. And so it's just having these talks where it's like, okay, you got to just understand where your limitations are going to be. And we can either try and kind of keep that growing a little bit with you as you develop your main skills that you're interested in, or you're going to have to take a big step back at some point at a higher belt level and understand that it's like, well, if I'm putting the gi on now for the first time as a purple belt, I'm going to get my ass whooped for a bit from the other guys that uh, are already used to training this. And if I'm going to try and teach for the first time, I have to understand that I suck at that. But as long as we have a growth mindset and understand that we can grow and we can become better from that and it's okay to learn again, then it's fine. Uh, it, it's really just, uh, I think, just important conversations to have with students and making sure that the expectations are clear on the mindset that they should have. So you'd mentioned um, that there's, obviously everybody sort of has like a different track in jujitsu, right? Yes. Whether they want to be a competitor, or they want the recreational, some people want to get into instruction. What, uh, what would you say in the population of your gym is just is it 80 percent recreational 20 percent competitive do you guys have a little oh god bit more it's even more recreational than that i'd say because we're on the far west coast of canada on vancouver island and we don't really have much for competition on the island itself there's a few competitions on the mainland but then even to travel across the border to seattle or portland it's it's a decent commitment to be able to go out there and we have to uh, we have done it and we will continue to do it but going to any like the major tournaments is a real pain in the ass and not too many people have that competitive mindset so everyone at our gym gets into jiu-jitsu because they're just really interested in it it's fun and then as competitions come up we will go to them but yeah no honestly it's like 90 to 95 percent recreational uh people are more interested in uh, just practicing it and probably more interested in eventually becoming like instructors with it than uh, necessarily competing. But it is, it's not something that we stra- uh, stay away from. And we do still want to have like a healthy turnout for local tournaments and stuff like that. And that's something that uh, we aim to do. I'm looking to get back into competing again, which is why I wanted to get this elbow surgery done. So I can actually perform pushups and start to get myself in some physical, uh, a decent level of physical fitness. So it's a great way of challenging ourselves. And so we don't stray, we don't stay away from competition, but it's definitely not the motivating factor for a lot of people. Yeah. I only ask, I, I just, it's, um, 
I had an interesting question from one of my customers actually where I work and he found out like he's searching the internet for uh, a gym to train at and he actually saw me on the Longwood website. So a gym where I used to train and he's like, uh, he, he's like, so, so if I join, how, how long for, you know, do you think the, the, they'll let me fight? And I'm like, man, I, what, you know, like, <laughs> you know, you, it, it, it's up to you whether you want to fight. He's like, so I mean, like if they see that I'm tough, like they'll, they'll put me in. Right. And I'm like, dude, you've been watching too much million dollar baby and uh, what, what's going on here, you know? And it's, it's funny just like the sort of preconceived notion of how people get into martial arts and like, they they just assume that everybody who joins a gym just wants to fight and you know go and compete every every day and and or every weekend and you're training you're constantly training for competition and to let to tell people in my experience that like probably 90% of the people who walk in the door just want to break a sweat you know and mm-hmm. to try to get them into I think that's a really cool approach that you and Rob have so are you just out of curiosity I don't know if you want to talk about this are you, are you like a part owner or are you no, uh, instructor. no, I'm just an assistant instructor for his gym. Okay. And do you teach it? Do you have scheduled classes that you teach or is it? No, uh, honestly, my thing is more of the online stuff. I, before the pandemic, I was teaching certain days every week, but with a rotating schedule at the jail that I work at doing like the four on four off or right now I'm part time at two on six off. It's, I work different days each week. And so mm-hmm. it's hard for me to have a consistent schedule. So I'm more just fill in when uh, they need coverage on certain days, which still I end up working, uh, teaching several days, like a month, but I'm always just in class, just doing my own training and teaching. Now, how do you, how do you like being a correctionals officer? And, and cause that's a, a unique, like you're the first jujitsu instructor that I know that, that has that as their, as their. I guess what real life job. I hate saying real life job. <laughs> yeah, real. You know life what I mean? Job. Like I hate the saying that. The real way we make like, some income. Whatever. <laughs> yeah. The one that your primary source of income. Let's put it that way. <laughs> you yes. know what I mean? Uh, yeah, I love being a corrections officer. It's my jail is like I always have to have just like the caveat because the jail that I work at is a very minimum security jail, and so compared to like the corrections officers that you hear about that are in these crazy environments, uh, high ratios of inmates to officers and violence and assaults and all that kind of stuff. I I'm fortunate that I don't actually deal with that stuff very often. So like I actually have never had to use my Brazilian Jiu Jitsu skills at the jail, uh, where in other lines of work that I've done in security and working at the hospital and stuff, I've had to use Jiu Jitsu a lot, but at the jail, I haven't had to, and so there we get to work more on uh, rehabilitation with the guys. And so we get to build a more meaningful relationship with the guys. We get to teach them new skills through uh, drugs and alcohol counseling, relationship counseling. There's a carpentry shop. The guys learn skills with that. Uh, there was a hose wash program where the guys are having hoses that are damaged uh, from uh, all the different firefighters get sent into us. And then the guys pressure test and repair all the hoses and send them back out. So the guys can fight uh, wildfires and stuff in the summer. So they get meaningful projects that they're able to work on and get to be while they're still segregated within jail, they get to be contributing members of the community in a different way. And so, yeah, there's, it's, it's a lot more of a, uh, sappy jail where we get to actually do meaningful work with each other. And we're not doing, doing, um, just the locking guys up in cells and dealing with assaults and violence and stuff all the time. So it's actually quite a rewarding job. 
That's awesome. And it, it's, it's cool to actually hear a firsthand account because for a guy like me who doesn't have a, you know, an immediate family member or anything that that's in law enforcement or not even law enforcement, because I do train with people that are police officers, but rather like working at a jail or a prison. Um, all that I've had my mind filled with is the depictions you see in, in popular media, which oh, yeah. is, you know, very asylum. extreme yeah. and, and probably not very representative of, <laughs> you know, what's going on. Well, so, so that's where like some jails are. And that's where like you talked to, like I talked to some of the officers uh, in the States and they'll have uh, like, I was just playing video games with a guy uh, a couple weeks ago that is a corrections officer in Texas. And he's at a jail with over 4,000 inmates and there is just violence off the charts and they get paid $12 an hour and it just sounds absolutely insane. And so you're going to have different criminal justice systems and prison systems, depending on the country. Uh, Obviously Canada, we're much more relaxed. And I think we have a better approach to criminal justice, but even within that, a jail that is like 200 kilometers away from uh, my jail is a more secure level jail which is kind of, I guess, getting more towards like maximum, if that's the term that you're more used to, that there's more violence there and officers do actually get assaulted there. So it depends on the institutional behavior of the inmate. And from there at my jail, we will take the lowest classifications, uh, the guys that are the most respectful and cause the least amount of problems once they're actually institutionalized. So um, the kind of the main question i kind of was really excited to to get your your opinion on your take on is um kind of teaching methodologies when it comes to jujitsu and i think we can all agree that in general you know a traditional and i I use the word traditional i guess here for jujitsu classes you've got your warm-up people jog around the mat they do their thing yeah i hate shrimps Yeah, well, I, 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 like I said, I mean, yeah. and I think, I think this is also changing. But I'm just so we have context of yeah. where I think, in general, a lot of places are, and and, and that's where the question is going to go. So you have your warm up, you have your shrimping, you do your technique demonstrations. Hopefully, the techniques relate to one another and they're part of a system. Rarely do. Sometimes that, yeah. Sometimes they are. Sometimes they aren't. And then there's a hefty part of if let's say it's an hour session. A hefty part of that time, at least 20 minutes, is dedicated to just rolling. You know, very little situational sparring. Now, um, I have my, I, I think a lot of that has to do with how Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu came into the United States and how it was taught originally in the garages in Southern California, you know, so to speak, and how it was disseminated, and that's influenced instruction. But I'm more interested in the thought and this is not necessarily my hypothesis, but it's one I've heard and it's one I'm starting to think has a possibility. And and the way you talk seems to suggest that you might believe the same thing, which is I feel like a lot of us, and I'm guilty of this too, even though I'm the one bringing this up, of overcomplicating jujitsu and making it seem like there are hundreds upon thousands of techniques that you have to learn. Where I look at all the other sports that I've played you know, throughout my life at intermediate to rather advanced levels. And I was never taught that way. It was never presented to me as you have to memorize all these different techniques for for you to succeed at this sport. So my question is, do you believe that there exists a relatively simple set of skills and concepts 
that a student needs to learn in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu that can be taught to a beginner that will allow them to develop well as opposed to loading them with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of techniques and making them connect the concept map in their head? That's a deep question because the reality is is that Jiu-Jitsu is complicated as hell. Uh, there's a lot to it. And even if we just look at different guards, like I've been doing jujitsu now for about 12 years and there are guards that I have just not even bothered playing with. I have an understanding of like the baseline of them and how to kind of defend them. But I'm sure even like when we start getting into like the different levels of these crazy worm guards and lasso guards and stuff like that, that if I get stuck in it against a high level practitioner, I'm going to have a hell of a time trying to deal with it because I'm not used to dealing with the high level version of those guards. So it is going to be complicated, but that's also kind of the cool part of jujitsu is that at 12 years in, I'm still learning new stuff and there's different avenues that I can go down if I want to. So what we have to first do is take a big step back and recognize and break this into more chunks that people are going to be able to work on. So rather than having just like this vast area of technique, we need to recognize what are the fundamental areas of Brazilian jujitsu that people need to work on. We have guard passing and we have guard retention. Those areas are huge. We have guard sweeping. You need to know how to actually sweep people from the guard. We need to know how to have uh, positional control on top from the different areas, not necessarily getting like super in depth with like mount and side control and stuff like that, but you need to understand it. You need to know how to control it. You need to know how to transition between those positions. You're looking at your back takes because that's a huge part of jujitsu. We dedicate our own like week to that. You have back control. Back control is the best position that you can have in a fight. And so that out of all the positions is the one that we'll spend the most time on when it comes to having the back, regaining back control. Uh, the only submission that we teach as a, in the fundamentals course, the BGJ 101 program, is the rear naked choke. And, uh, and then we're looking at positional escapes. So the way that Rob teaches us jiu-jitsu at first is your goal in Brazilian jiu-jitsu when you first start is to learn how to control your body. Once you've learned how to control your own body, then you're looking at controlling your opponent's body. And only then, once you're used to controlling your opponent's body, then would we look at ways of being able to actually submit your opponent. And so the controlling your opponent and controlling yourself is two things that will kind of happen simultaneously depending on the technique, but you're going to be working on things like the technical stand-up. You're going to work on your hip escapes from side control and from bottom mount. You're going to be working on movement pace passing like the leg drag, like X passing and stuff like that, where it's like you still have control of your opponent, but you're getting used to balancing and really moving around yourself a lot too. Then actually looking at how we control our opponent with direct rotational control, where you have like chest to chest connection or chest to back connection, looking at lever based rotational control, where we're looking at actually using levers on our opponent's body, like say Kimura control uh or even like the leg drags and stuff where we're using our opponent's legs to get leverage on our opponent's body to turn them away forcefully and so that's really like the the main things is i want the students to learn how to be able to stay upright to be able to control themselves balance effectively generate base to be able to move through guard passing into dominant positions to be able to control this go transition between all the different has trans uh the positions take their back take their opponents back, control the back for a while, transition out of back control if they needed to, to another dominant position. If they get reversed, <clears throat> are they able to prevent the opponent from being able to get past their guard or be able to actually sweep them and start the process over again? And 
The part that always confuses people is that the rear naked choke is the only thing we teach at first as a submission, but it is a strangulation, so it is safe. Joint locks are inherently more dangerous for beginners to learn because obviously we're going to be taking a joint and hyperextending it or hyper-rotating it <clears throat> to the point where it's about to get hurt. And when people are uncomfortable or don't know their limitations, they might not tap in time. But especially when you have people that do not know how to control their bodies and do not know how to control their opponent's bodies, that means we're going to be taking an arm bar and you're going to be seeing a white belt just taking this arm and just trying to reef across <laughs> your hip because they want that gym tap. Yeah, and you guys are like nudging each other. It's like, oh yeah, yeah, I know exactly what he's talking about. Oh, I, had, I, had, I, had a, I had a story like that recently. <laughs> yeah. and it's like, dude, it's like, we never showed you the arm bar yet the guy's ripping an arm bar yeah, on like... Yeah. You know, exactly. Like, the so internet we try, the UFC exists. It's like we don't yeah, yeah. discourage submissions by any uh, point, but until white belts at least get their first stripe on their white belt, which is when they can start attending the more advanced classes, the 201 curriculum, we only want them to be doing rear naked chokes because one, it is the best submission. It's the submission that we see the most at the highest levels. So if it's a submission that's working on high level black belts, we want you guys to be building these skills on your, like, whether it's your first day or at least within your first, like, few months, you will have been introduced to this. And this will be a submission that you get to take with you to the highest level if you were, if you had that kind of aspiration and dedication versus, say, learning something like uh, a go-go plata or some bullshit arm and calf slice or stuff that just you, we don't see working at a certain point. And also, a rear naked choke, I mean... There are some experiences now where people are experiencing strokes and stuff if they're getting choked out repeatedly, it looks like. But it, as long as you're not an idiot and getting letting yourself go to sleep all the time, which nobody should be doing, it is relatively safe to be applying chokes and strangulations at like full force on each other so that if we do have white belts getting out of control when I'm not looking, worst case scenario, somebody just has a nap and uh or has a sore throat depending on how the arm gets positioned over like the windpipe and so it's much safer and so we have lower injuries and also from back control it's a, a safer position that you're less likely to <clears throat> go for a submission and possibly lose everything so we're very much about uh making sure that people are playing tactically safe making tactically safe decisions in the sense that if you have mount and you go for a mounted triangle, I want you to finish the mounted triangle. I don't want you to, and we see it work at the highest level, so I'm not saying that we can't do it, but I try and discourage people from rolling on their back to finish that triangle from bottom, because if they roll onto their back, and if it fails, they have now given up top position. And then that means that you have a hell of a hill ahead of you to climb in order to try and get back on top. Or if we're looking at situations like, self-defense or mixed martial arts you cannot risk ever conceding bottom position because it could definitely uh bite you in the ass so uh we try and cut back the submissions that they learn at first and we want to focus on just positional control and so that's why coming back to your question about the uh, an optimal way of teaching it we cut out there's no warm-up because people are not paying me to have them do jumping jacks for the first 10 fucking minutes. I want them to jump right into class. If they can show up early, because for us, we try and show up about 15 minutes early to every class. If people want to do that kind of warm up, or like for me, I like doing different yoga flows and stuff like that, working on stretching different parts of my body that I know are a little more tight, like one knee or one shoulder over the other. Uh, they can do that. 
And then when they get into class, I show the technique, they start drilling it, they drill it slowly. And that can be their way of slowly warming up because I'm not going to be showing them some technique that's like, okay, guys, we're going to now start moving into rubber guard mission control into like a go-go plata as the starting technique where someone has to have hyper flexibility and sh needs to be warmed up to make it work. We're teaching uh, techniques that are biomechanically sound that keep people in strong alignment so that you're not ever positioning yourself in some weird way that puts your knee or your shoulder at risk. And they're able to train that and slowly warm up. And then whether we have only one technique or upwards of three techniques for the class, they're going to be connected, whether it's guard passing sequences or uh, transition sequences from control, uh, from like side control or taking the back it's going to be limited to that thing. So I'm not going to teach them something to do with like a guard pass to then teaching them something about how to finish the rear naked choke. If we're focusing on taking the back, that's all we're doing all week. If we're focusing on uh, guard passes, that's all we're doing all week. If we're working on guard sweeping, that's all we're doing all week and especially for the class. And then depending on the class and also the level of the students and how it looks like they're handling the technique, we'll throw in specific sparring or positional sparring within midway of the class or always at the end. And so we'll have the different positional sparring drills, uh, two six minute rounds at the end, different contexts to them, different range battles for them to have to make sure that they're working on that. So we don't have just free rolling within that one hour class. We'll usually have free rolling for an hour after the class, but it's its own thing that people can show up to because it, it's, as you guys, it sounds like you're kind of referencing towards as well. It's like it, you, if you don't have this positional sparring or specific range battle sparring, whatever you're working on, it's one thing to work on like side control or back takes. And then all of a sudden you go into doing just regular rounds after that. And if you can't get to that specific spot, you might not get to do any of those movements that you practice on the entire class, especially depending on like, cause everyone's going to be super sharp and paying attention. Like if we just worked on how to finish uh, a back take from like uh chair sit from side control. And all of a sudden I managed to pass one of your guys' guard guards. You're going to be sitting there going like, Oh, well, Rory's definitely going to be looking for the chair sit from side control. So I'm going to make sure I shut that down at all costs because that's the move of the day. We're hyper aware of it. And so then I'm not getting to actually do practice with that. So we'll force restrictions on the partners first to be like, hey, you guys are limited within this battle. And this these are the responses that you guys have to be like either giving or like with that range that you have to be staying in that pocket. And we're going to do that three minutes each and switching through. So then hopefully you get reps of being able to either make that technique happen or you at least get to experience failure a bunch of times in that area where the technique should happen. So you have something to learn from, from that of knowing what the limitations were, what you might be screwing up. It gives me the ability as the instructor to see it over and over again, to be able to tell a student what they're screwing up on and why that back take isn't working. Like we drilled in class, we're able to problem solve that. And then the, the full on sparring can open up afterwards and whether guys actually try and use those techniques of the day that we were working on or throughout the week or month, that uh, obviously I encourage them to try and do that because that's what they're working on or they can go down whatever kind of pass they want. But that's kind of the fun of the, the open sparring afterwards is that we never know exactly what the pass are that that's going to go down. Now um, along that lines, I mean, this is something we're always like discussing at our gym because we have, uh, we have a fundamentals class 
But within that fundamentals class, we have what's called the foundation section. And that sounds like it's equivalent to, at least in spirit, to your 101 class, where it's like, this is the curriculum new students have to complete in order to get their first stripe. The idea is they, they you know, our, our, our rationale was make sure they have an idea of something to do in the basic positions of, of jujitsu so their likelihood to get lost is minimized dramatically as, you know, for progression. Because what we hate is, like you said, they learn, they're brand new, they learn one thing, they end up going in a situation where they get out of it somehow and then they have no idea what to do, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, my question is, I, 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 I like the idea of this progression. At what point would you say you draw the line for I'm hand-holding the student or I'm enforcing co- sort of a, to some degree, a curriculum of skill development. And at what point do you draw the line and say, now it's on the student to explore jujitsu and explore the avenues and the techniques that are interesting to that person? I mean, that point's going to be different for everybody. So when we're looking at like how we're ranking the students, there's certain things like guard sweeps, guard retention, back takes, back control, those things are, they have to have paths on which to, to be able to do that. So we have certain techniques that are more like the fundamentals. Like if you're trying to do guard retention, you have to know how to perform a high leg or a high pummel. That's just a staple that like 90% of your guard retention needs to be. You need to know how to gramby. You need to know how to do a half gramby. You need to know how to do uh, framing hip escapes or collar ties. There's certain specific movements that have to happen. Just like say for, Guard passing, you need to know how to do the leg drag. You need to know how to do a Toriando, an X pass, and a knee cut. Those are like the four staple passes that we teach within uh, our fundamentals program that will give them some excellent movement-based passing that can chain together so it can be taught as a system, but also really give them the ability to move and balance themselves so they can learn to control their own body. Then how they actually want to tie those techniques together while I'll show them like kind of a fundamental way that they can, they can certainly start figuring out their game pretty early on. Or when I'm teaching them a guard, when we're looking at like guard sweeps, there's a lot of stuff that we do just from like an open position, like feet on the hips, looking at tripod sweep, looking at double ankle sweep, etc. But to get their blue belt, I want them to start developing a guard. And so it's up to them on what that guard is. Blue belt? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I want them to start having attacks that they can start chaining together where it's like, if we're going to promote some of the blue belts and just be like, Hey, what's your guard of choice? And I want them to be able to say it's Delahiva. Okay. Excellent. Why? And I want them to understand that range battle that that's playing in. I want them to have a few options of different sweeps there, what they're going to be doing for guard retention, which I don't think is too much to ask. It's just taking a lot of these different techniques of the guard retention and the sweeps and stuff, and then going, Hey, how do we tie that into this? And then there's obviously going to be specific techniques and sweeps that they can use from, say, Delahiva that would change from reverse Delahiva or half guard or single leg X was my first guard, probably, uh, thinking back. And so, like, do you know how to enter that position? Do you know how to kind of exit that position? You don't need to have, like, this in-depth game, black belt level. But I just want to know, it's like, do you have one or two options where it's like, I try and go for plan A, they shut it down, plan B is my follow-up. I don't want a student to not have an idea of where they're trying to funnel their game. And that can change. So what 
was uh, a certain guard for them at blue belt, they might all of a sudden, by the time they're working towards purple belt, we want them to have three guards at that point developed. They might go, oh, you know what? Actually, I'm not fucking into that guard anymore. I really like butterfly guard, single leg X and X guard. And I want that instead of half guard. And, I mean, half guard is a range that's necessary to work on. So it's not work that was uh, for nothing. It'll come back eventually once they're interested in it. But I want them to have a goal of what they're trying to work towards because otherwise, and we're all guilty of this to an extent is not putting much meaning behind our training where you're just like, Oh man, I don't know what I want to work on today. Let's just, uh, let's just roll, see what happens. And it's like that there's some enjoyment to that for sure. But, and there's nothing wrong with that for a warm up. but at a certain point as well, we want to be taking more initiative in our training and going like, Hey, you know what? I'm going in and I want to be like almost as if it was like competition in the sense that not, at that intensity, but you should have game plans of stuff that you're working on or specific stuff that you're working on for even just one specific round or for that day where it's like, I want to be working on my single leg X entries. That's the main thing I want to accomplish this round. Can I get to single leg X from various positions? Maybe I know the positions that I want to try and get to, uh, get from two single leg X. Maybe I just want to give up single leg X once I get to it so that I can keep trying to repeat getting back to it. Maybe there's an arm drag from a certain situation that I want to keep working on or a specific leg lock entry. That is my goal for that round or a certain submission. That is my goal for that round or for the day, rather than just playing loosely and seeing what happens every time and not having much uh, development. So I want my blue belts or as they're even like as white belt earning towards blue belt, if they're able to tell me like, Oh yeah, I really like going for the leg drag and then chaining into the Toriando. Excellent. There's your plan A and B for late uh, for guard passing that I want to see before I promote you. And if they're doing retention and they're like, yeah, I go for the high pummel. But if that starts to fail, I perform a full grand B every time. Perfect. You got a plan A and B for at least one specific spot in your guard retention. And then if they're like, I like Delahiva and I'm looking to go for like tripod sweep if they're not pushing into me. And then if they do push into me, I'm looking to load them over top of my head and I'm looking to pummel in to control the inside space and moving into like single leg X guard. Then I'm like, Great, you're tying two guards together, and that's getting even more in depth. You have a plan that when I see you get to Delahiva, I'll be like, okay, I know where Brad's trying to get to today. He's working towards something like that. And if he starts going down a different path, then he's either working on something different or he completely shit the bed. We need to figure out how can we funnel him back towards that. So I want them to start creating these uh, plans of where they're trying to get themselves to and that's kind of part of what our promotions are based around. They're not just like, uh, it's not just a test. We don't like tests. It's kind of just like becomes a dance at that point that people rehearse and they could perform well on that day, or they could completely shit the bed on that day. And it doesn't mean that they're competent or incompetent. It's just how they perform under stress in that circumstance as an instructor. And it's easier to do with smaller schools, but usually uh, you can keep pretty on track for about 50 students is out of like the information that we've read. And so that's where Rob started building us up as assistant instructors is that as we got towards about 150 students at one point before the pandemic, Rob knew 50 students really well. And I knew about another 50 students really well. And then Cal McDonald, another black belt under Rob knew the other students really well. And so there'd be certain times where Rob would be like, Hey, I'm looking to promote this person potentially. What do you think of Brad's game? Because I know you're closer to Brad. You work with him more often and so we're able to stay a little more connected and be like, hey, I know how he's performing in his roles more often. I roll with him more often. Uh, I teach him more often. He asks me questions more often because even in the gym, in the same way I talked about with online influencers and instructors, 
you'll naturally gravitate towards certain people or you'll feel that uh, you get along with someone better or you like their approach and how they teach a little bit better. And so I'll have students that naturally gravitate towards me over Rob or Cal will have people that gravitate towards him and feel more comfortable talking to. And so I know these students and between all of us as a team, we know the students really well. So it's like the idea of having a test held for them when we can just go, no, I know that this guy performs at a blue belt level consistently because we all have shit days sometimes. Uh, we know where they're at and how we're going to promote them. And we're promoting them based on these different fundamental areas. Like I talked about guard sweeping, uh, guard retention, guard passing, back takes, back control. Uh, what are their submission chains at that point? What are they like? What's their main submission that they're looking for? What are their guards that they're tying together? These should be questions that, do you, especially do as you we get to a high them, level. Sorry to interrupt. Yes. I'm, I'm, no, I'm very familiar with Rob's stuff. Um, yeah. Just because I, I, I'm very familiar with uh, Stefan Casting's stuff. Yeah. And I know they do a lot of work together commercially. Um, so do you guys actively in your instruction use the sort of like the BJJ formula and yes. the Kazushi formula. Like, are you actively teaching those exact same concepts to your students, or is that sort of like a commercialized product that he's able to just systemize and no, we put teach, on DVD? We teach that stuff. I mean, depending on what we're looking at, like for Kazushi's, where we're looking at off-balancing techniques to create vulnerability in our opponent, that's going to be different depending on the technique. But there's always like, so for us, the universal concept that we teach is alignment, which is our body's ability to generate and absorb force maximally. Your body, but biomechanically has an optimal alignment, an athletic position for it to perform at its best. And so if you look at like weightlifting, you have a specific alignment that you need to generate force from bench press, but that's a different alignment that you need to generate the best force for squatting or for deadlifts. It changes, but you have ways to position yourself, your posture the integrity of your spinal column, your structure, which is the efficient and uh, effective positioning of your limbs and base a platform from which to generate and absorb force with those three things, each of your different compound lifts or exercises and weightlifting, it's going to be optimized. Same for jujitsu. So we teach that and we want to teach ways for people to be able to break their opponent's alignment. So that's where like we talk about like the idea that first a student needs to know how to control their own body. They need to keep themselves in optimal alignment so that they don't create vulnerability in themselves and they're less likely to injure themselves. But then how do we control the opponent? If I'm trying to go for a sweep from a guard, it's difficult. You, you don't just sweep black belts by just going for plan A. There needs to be a little bit of a setup in the sense that you're trying to do something to Kazushi to off balance them, to create that little break in their alignment where you either make them post their hand on their mat, on the mat, which affects their structure. You manage to pull down on their head, which breaks their posture. You manage to get them to stumble for a second and put them in a less optimal base. You've affected their alignment. Now they're more vulnerable for the real attack, which is going to be like, so if it's like from boxing, you throw that jab to first draw that response to affect their alignment. And then you're hitting them with that cross right down the middle. You have to have that next option to be able to actually launch that attack. So it's always about creating a little bit of vulnerability what that looks like and how in depth that is really depends on the class that's cool that's awesome like to i, I like that conceptual approach to teaching like because that's sort of like teaching a man to fish right like once you kind of get those little core fundamentals down they can kind of figure out the rest themselves right um, well i've got i've trained with some guys that even like brown belt level and like they have an amazing x guard but 
how are they going to get to X guard on me? And they'll be trying to make this entry work on me. And I'm just standing there like, you're not affecting my alignment enough. I'm very strong from here and I'm going to shut you down all day. And I'm sure you guys, depending on the stages that you're at in your development, or especially when you're first new, it's like, oh, I drilled this technique and I feel really sharp with it. But as soon as I try it on the instructor, he just laughs at me and throws me off to the side. And you're just like, what the fuck? And it's like, well, if you're not able to create some vulnerability before trying to set up that technique, you're never going to do it. It's like trying to throw a triangle on me, but I have my arms and my elbows nice and close to my sides and my posture is very straight. A triangle is never going to work. You have to get me broken in some way in an unathletic position, and now your triangle entry will work. But I don't think that usually gets taught very well when we're looking at the usual curriculum and jujitsu classes. No, you, you don't get that very, very often. Yes. Which is, that's awesome that you guys do that. So like if I were to just, if I were to go to your gym, which I, from my understanding, you guys have a, uh, like a traveler program. I've heard visitor talk student about that. program. Yeah. So no I, next time we're in Vancouver, we will be taking you guys up on that. Uh, um, absolutely. Yeah. Reach out to <laughs> Rob or reach out to myself. Uh, the odd time that Rob's been too, uh, booked up with visitors. I have an extra room that, uh, I can bring people over to, but you guys can come stay for free and train for free. Yeah, that's that that's awesome. That that that's... the jujitsu lifestyle, man. No, no, yeah. no, no yeah. that legitimately that legitimately is 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 awesome, and and uh, I hope more people listen and 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 take people up on that and and do it at their academies because there's something very. You know, we we've had discussions about this, and and I didn't say this from the outset, but you know, kind of the origin of this podcast, the genesis, and the reason we call it BJJ and Brews is because you know, typically on Saturdays, you know there'd be a lawn session. We'd be sweating. We'd be sitting there after class. We started grabbing, you know, Bruce started entering the, the, yep. the environment. We started drinking, but we just hang around chit chat and we'd exchange ideas. And, and that was sort of the genesis of this podcast. Like what, what are the conversations that we have after class with our, with our fellow, um, jujitsu practitioners. And one of the things we've talked about is there's something very unique about the mindset of people that do jujitsu almost like and I, I think there's some similarity with surfing too where it's like if you find another person that surfs and you surf or you find another person that does jujitsu and you jujitsu you guys immediately click Do because you're like you get friends? our weirdness <laughs> you know what i mean <laughs> yep so um yeah i think you know opening uh opening uh your doors to travelers is, is is fucking awesome so um and i hope more people do stuff like that well you know we're actually we're bjj cousins to you because rob got his black american belt under, top team yep mccarthy yeah. right yep and charles mccarthy got his black belt the same day paul did really yeah he's one of the few pe so there weren't many people that got promoted on that day no. it was just like three it was like mccarthy paul and, and dean thomas i think no dean I think Dean got his black belt before. Okay. Cause, what cause I remember, he, I remember seeing a first. video of, of basically a whole bunch of black belts. Just, and I guess he was in there because I didn't yeah. realize who the other black belt was. But my instructor and his instructor, Paul, was there. And he was just getting thrown mercilessly. Oh, like he, it was just like, it was like a new black belt come in, bow, take him, toss him. And he'd just get up, another one come in, toss him. Because they got it done at coconut creek so yeah um so one thing uh, there's so much i could go with what you just said about about how how you approach the teaching the curriculum um what you sort of how you break things down and where you let students 
you know, sort of um, arrive on the things they like to it's do. It's a very like Montessori style. No, it's right? awesome. Like, yeah. It's awesome. Um, I, I have so many questions about this, but I do want to ask one that always comes up when we're sitting on the mats talking about this stuff because there's students. I'm certainly one of them that's like, we need more we need to drill more. We need to do more situational sparring and all that. And the counter argument to that and the stuff you're describing is the counter argument would be levied against what you're saying is, but how do we offer an experience that is still appealing to consumers? Because if we, if we focus too much on proper skill development, we risk abandoning students that are there for an experience. So, we, we risk turning away possible customers, which at the end of the day, we got to understand we're a gym with paying customers. We're not a yeah. team of people where people are coming to train with us to get better. And the typical argument is if we did three Randori classes a week, those would be the ones where everyone comes to because they're not classes. They're just yep. rolling and everyone would be happy, you know. Yep. So I'm not saying I agree with that, but I'm saying that's the devil's advocate view. So what is your response to to that? So the first part of that is the culture that you develop at the gym. Uh, and so that's the problem that I think a lot of other gyms have if they try and shift towards that and you have that countering mindset is that you start to get a split in the gym where people feel that there is a better path. The thing that Rob has always taught us from the beginning is that drilling is the way that we're going to hone our skills at first to make sure that you can make sure you can coordinate your body and be able to actually perform the technique properly before that there's resistance. And then we need to be able to maximize our proficiency in that through the drilling, but also the positional sparring of that, like I was talking about. We need to make sure we can actually replicate this against a resisting opponent over and over again, rather than just hoping that maybe we find that position once in the hour of which we're sparring randomly with a bunch of other guys. We want to make sure that we're able to be in that pocket and hit that same sweep or submission attempt over and over again in three minutes, even if it's just three or five times, but that's going to be much better than hitting it only once, say over in the next hour that people are drill, uh, trying to spar. So there's a mindset that drilling is fun and that it's super important and drillers make killers kind of thing and making sure people understand that. Are there people that sometimes get bored? Yes, but at the same time, because we have people that do take this quite seriously, not competitively, but seriously enough that they want to get good at jujitsu recreationally, they do drill and they do positionally spar. And then we have guys that try to show up only for the open mats or for the rolling sessions after class, and they repeatedly get steamrolled. And so there becomes this swaying of the, uh, the pendulum where the people that are drilling and specific sparring and listening to the instructors versus the guys that are watching some YouTube videos and trying to come in just for the sparring aspect more often and just want to learn from rolling, uh, which, I mean, is an important part of jiu-jitsu. It's what sets jiu-jitsu apart uh, from, say, traditional martial arts that don't have a live sparring aspect. It is not a good way of having... It's not, the, it's not good for a soul learning purposes. You have to have the drilling and the positional sparring, and then you get to replicate it in a live sparring situation. And so we do have that swing where the people that drill fuck up the people that come in and try and just do the live sparring like that. And so like typically what people want from jujitsu, especially like speaking of like young men that are coming in and training, 
we learn to let the, the ego go and lose, but we do want to win again. We want to make that climb and we like to actually have goals that we achieve, whether that's submissions and getting those taps in the gym or in competition, which is a huge way of which we measure success, but even micro goals in the sense that you manage to survive that round. You manage to not get hit with a certain submission that you usually get submitted with. So your defense is improving. You manage to get that arm drag to the back. You might've just been a guard pass or a transition. There's these little goals that people can focus on and have success with to hold their heads high for rather than just being like, man, it's going to be six months until I manage to submit a blue belt. That's going to be, that's can be kind of mentally defeating. And so, they're looking for those goals and they can achieve them more regularly when they actually train properly with the instructors as we intend them to um, where certain guys that do come in and they do want to just do the learning from uh, sparring only, or they think that that's the most fun. And sometimes that's what the body needs or the mind needs. Like you have a shitty day at work or whatever. And you're just like, man, I'm just going to go into the sparring today, the open mat. And I just want to, try and just fight everybody you're like all right perfect there's days for that but as long as you dedicate more time to the drilling you will get better and if people show up for that sparring and they just get their asses whooped over and over again and they're the nail every day then we start to see either the growth mindset where someone switches and goes hey you know what the shit that these guys are doing is actually working i need to actually get on board with this and i need to do that they'll do that and they'll do so with a, that different mindset where it might not have been as interesting to them at first, but they know that that's what they need to do. They need to be disciplined, which is one of the principles of martial arts. It's like you have to have discipline that this is going to pay off long-term. You might not have the most fun for that 40 minutes that you're drilling one technique or multiple techniques, but it's going to pay off in the sense that then you start to actually sweep or submit or pass people's guards and higher uh, level people's guards. Or they have that fixed mindset where they're a little more frustrated by it. And uh, uh, the people that can't adapt their mindset are the ones that are going to walk away. And there is a certain level that we have decided, and it hasn't actually affected the business negatively in any way, but there has definitely been people over the years that's like they ended up walking away because they just got their asses kicked too much and they were refused to change their mindset or they didn't like the approach of only drilling. And uh, for the culture that we're trying to develop and for the the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few, we just say bye to those individuals if that's what it comes down that, to. But that is, very so rarely that happens. A, uh, I mean, like, and that's like, you'd kind of hit the nail on the head there. It's like, it hasn't really negatively affected business that much, right? No. Do you, is it a matter also that you guys just hold them back more? Like, because, you know, because they, at some point, like, they have to see that drilling works. If they still just don't have that mindset, then you just keep them at a blue belt with one stripe or however long. Oh yeah. Well, am I going to get my purple or whatever the case is? And then, yeah. And so that's where, like I said, it's, we actually have reasons for why we grade people, which I think a lot of people just kind of haphazardly give out blue belts or purple belts without too much understanding besides maybe attendance or performance in competition. And so if someone's asking us why they haven't got promoted or what they have to do to get promoted, which is conversations that we personally encourage because it's goals that people are striving towards. So I don't want to punish people for asking about their next belt. I, I will have reasons 
And Rob will have reasons for why they're not being promoted yet, why they didn't get a stripe the last promotion. It's like, well, you haven't worked on your guard retention. You haven't worked on your guard passing. I'm not seeing a noticeable improvement. I need you to start coming to those fundamentals, uh, to the one-on-one program and working on that stuff because you keep showing up to the 201 because it's Kimura control. And that's fucking awesome and so much fun. But you have to have that discipline to make sure you come back to the 101 and drill those classes. And that's why we call it fundamentals instead of beginner classes, because we will have the black belts and brown belts attending the 101 program, because how we teach the leg drag in our fundamentals program is the exact same way I'm going to do it as a black belt against higher level black belts. So it's not like it's beneath me to attend that class. Like it's like, oh, our beginners, I'm not going to go to that. It's the fundamentals and they're, it's taught in a way like Rob is always told us that he's teaching us to beat black belts. And so if we're not seeing the technique work on black belts at a high level, that's not something that we're interested in training because there's no evidence back behind that to show that that's going to be something that works. So when someone's like, oh, I want to do this dumbass sweep or this dumbass guard pass or dumbass submission that we just never see at the high level, like all this crap that you see sh- uh, shared on Instagram all the time, this wacky, like f- the, fancy the bullshit. 20 move like sequences. Yeah. And, and it's like, right, well, that, what are we out. seeing for submissions or uh, things that are working at ADCC and Nogi Worlds and Worlds and Pans at Black Belt. Those are things that it's like the rear naked choke, like we talked about. If I got people working on that rear naked choke at White Belt in their first week, by the time they're at Black Belt, they're going to be goddamn proficient at it. And they're going to have more ways of setting that up. And that's going to be something that they can use. The thing that sucks the most uh, and I went through this before I trained with Rob is that I work on bullshit from like submissions one one or other things like online. And then once I start training with Rob and I'm trying this on a black belt, he just shuts it all down and he destroys me and punishes me. And I go, there's just now this negative consequence to any of these moves that I'm trying. Why is that? And he'll explain how it fundamentally doesn't hold up and how it doesn't actually one the breaking mechanics or whatever, the finishing mechanics don't work on good guys and that it doesn't have a, they don't have strong entries. They don't have strong exit plans. So like I said, like these submissions become these hail Marys where I risk top position and then I end up on bottom every time. So I get punished for it. It's not like I'm just going like a rear naked choke. You go for it from the back. Worst case scenario, it gets shut down. You go right back to hand fighting. You're controlling the back still. Nothing else happened negatively for you. You get to just keep your opponent in this defensive cycle and make them eat shit until you eventually finish them. But if you try and pull some flying arm bar and it fails, all of a sudden now you've fallen onto your back and now the person's on top and you're like, holy crap, this just got a hell of a lot worse for me. They pulled their arm out and now you're suffering because of it. And so we started going over certain criteria that is necessary for positions or uh, especially for submissions to be successful. And so uh, that's uh, all these things that we are always teaching and making sure that the guys understand that we're not just spoon feeding them garbage. It's stuff that's backed by evidence and by actual fundamental and conceptual approaches that they can understand they can get behind. So the people, they actually like, they believe it. It's not, I mean, it sounds almost culty to an extent. So it's like, we're always very careful about how we're saying this, but it's, it's science to that extent that it's based on evidence. And when new evidence comes forward, like if people start getting their knees blown out reliably by calf slicers at a high level, you're going to see me post a new YouTube video talking about my old YouTube videos, shitting on calf slicers and being like, Hey, evidence has changed. New stuff has come forward. And I don't look at that as a bad thing. That's just me having to take the evidence as it comes out and adjust to it. And so that's all we ever promise 
the students is that we'll try and stay as up to date with the information and teach it the best we can. And uh, if they can find better information elsewhere, they're more than welcome to either bring that to our attention or to even train with those people if they wanted to. And we, uh, Rob even pays for students to go and drop in at other academies. He'll be like, you bring me the receipt. I'll pay for it. You can check it out because he's, awesome. he's pretty confident that uh, when you go to another class, you're going to be like, wow, that, that sucked. Uh, I, I want to come <laughs> back. I want to go back to Island Top Team and train with Rob. And, How many, uh, um, like, what's the jujitsu scene like on a... Uh on Vancouver Island? Uh, it's quite small. We only have one other gym in uh, in Nanaimo, in the city that we're located in. And uh, they're nice people, and I don't want to like publicly talk smack, but they're just not very good at jiu-jitsu. Uh, but they're great people. I used to train there before Rob had opened shop. And then there's places like in Victoria, uh, which is maybe like a, an hour and a half, two-hour drive. Um, everything's pretty spread out. It's a, it's a very large island, but the cities are spread out like usually about half an hour to an hour away. And so whatever city you're in, you're basically going to be training at the one or two academies that are in that city. So just it, it, kind of a, I'm almost say a silly question, but it, it, it's how do you address, like when you say we're teaching techniques that are going to work against black belts and black belt responses, Yes. How do you address teaching white belts what to do when their partner does something that a more experienced grappler would immediately shut down, but the white belt doesn't know and it succeeds against that white belt? So it's like oftentimes the white belt, I, I, let me just describe, there are so yep. many times a white belt, and, and even now there'll be times where I'll be like, what if my partner does this? And my coach will be like, well, you just do that. You know, you're like, oh, fuck, of course, okay? But sometimes, so my point is, is black belts will not do the nonsensical shit because they know it doesn't work, but at lower levels, it can work sometimes. So is that just a quick, like, we'll just do that? Or do you find that you actually find ways around that where students don't encounter that as much? And how do you do that without shutting down the, the need for them to learn and the, the creative process, right? Like, well, so yeah, that's kind of the, the part that we can't, we can't watch every single role and we can't stop every dumb thing that happens. And so uh, <laughs> if it happens, it happens. That's it's part of the learning process. Like I've that had dumb, success with dumbass moves in my life that then, like I said, once I started rolling with Rob and I started realizing that they sucked and that they weren't working on somebody comp competent, one, Rob was able to explain rationally why they weren't working. So it wasn't just like this do as I say kind of thing. We were able to have uh uh, a rational decision made and he was able to explain it so that it's like okay i understand this i'm not just going to listen blindly to authority i can have it explained and i can understand that part then i also get to experience that it doesn't fucking work and so that's where if it works on a white belt they might get away with it they might do it several times if i see it happen i might then shit on the person that it worked on and be like oh brad you your alignment was completely screwed up there that's why this happened because you had your hand on the mat and you allowed them to manage to set up like a triangle in this really stupid way and then there's a bit of rational behind that slash some we like to tease students too like we have this culture where uh they'll even tease the instructors it comes back and stuff in a respectful way where we're just constantly bashing on each other and having fun with it so we'll roast each other when we do dumb stuff including like when the black belts do something stupid against each other and 
or I'll also point out to the student that does the move and be like, that crap will never work on anybody good. And sometimes they'll ask questions off of that and I'll show them more of the better way of how they could go through that technique to enter in a certain submission, or maybe it's a dumbass submission that I'm just going to shut down entirely and sometimes even address the entire class and be like, Hey guys, let's have a discussion about this crappy move. And just like this, so you guys can understand where our point of view is coming with this, because once again, I don't want them to just hear me say something and just take it as fact. I want them to ask questions. I want them to even challenge me on it. As I had challenged Rob several times as I was, moving up ranks where I was like, Hey, I want to do moves this way. Cause I think it's going to work better. And then we would sometimes just have verbal discussions for like half an hour talking about the having rebuttals back and forth on why this move would work. Or we would positionally spar this thing over and over again. And uh, unfortunately I almost always lost the, the debate in that sense, but I learned from it in the sense that Rob was able to prove why something worked. I got to challenge my skill and knowledge in an area and I still had to have that growth mindset to sway uh, into like having to listen to him. And now as I've gotten better, I'm able to win that discussion once in a while. But I also realized that the discussion is because it's usually an attribute based thing that as I'm six foot five and lanky as hell, I can make certain things work that I'm honestly not going to ever teach you guys or on my YouTube channel because it just isn't going to work for the general population. But if a lanky person wants a technique, I'll be like, oh, I have a hat trick of different techniques that I can pull out for you guys and show you like what I do with my ridiculous body type, but uh, shut it down. And if they manage to make it work on a bunch of lower belts, then it's time to roll with me and I'll let them try <laughs> and go with it. And that's the great thing about jujitsu too. Like I said, is that you get to feel it. You get to feel what works. And so I can talk a big game about my conceptual approach and why certain techniques work and don't work but then we'll have visiting students come and try this stuff and we'll just shut them down and I will make them pay for it every time. So it's not just like some flow roll, like we'll, we can roll light and stuff, but I, I do not, I always say I, I do not reward bad behaviors. And so if a white belt is doing a bad technique, whether it's them just fucking up a guard retention movement, that is a good guard retention movement, but they just performed it poorly or timed it incorrectly. I'll pass their guard. I will punish them immediately for it and explain why if necessary or explain after the round. It really depends on uh, who you're rolling with and the intensity of the round, if it's appropriate to talk during the round. But I'll make sure that they feel it because I really don't like when people pull off poorly executed moves or moves that are just trash that don't work on anyone that's actually alive and let them have that success. And so there's, there's multiple different ways of dealing with it. But the great thing at the very end of the day is that they can roll with the upper students the upper belt students and get punished whenever they try and do one of those bad moves. And they'll see, well, if this hasn't worked on Rory the last 20 times I've tried it, maybe it's time for me to ask the question about what I can do to improve it or have that discussion on whether this is something that should even be part of my game. And so some people, it takes a little bit longer uh, to have that uh, kind of burned into their brain and other people like for me i never had that issue with rob where as soon as rob started explaining stuff to me i just would drop things out of my game entirely and i would never touch it again and then other students did not that started the same time as me didn't progress as fast because they were holding on to those old ideals those techniques that they liked that were a part of their training for the last like four years and while it was all bad blue belt level techniques that we had at the time before training with rob Renacki 
you still you can't help but be emotionally attached to the, those tools that you have, and uh, those people will progress slower. What uh? When do you introduce leg entanglements and uh? White and belt. attacks. I'm sorry. White belt. Right White away. White belt. I mean, so like in the fundamentals program, leg locks aren't a thing. But in the 201 program, which they can attend once they have one stripe on their white belt, they can start learning leg locks. Sometimes that is just heel hooks right off the bat because heel hooks to us are, while they can be catastrophic injuries, if taught properly, they're no more dangerous than something like a Kimura or an armbar. Those can really fuck people up too. Uh, and I'm sure you guys have seen it. So as long as people learn how to apply the breaking mechanics properly and slowly in a controlled manner, which is the thing that I've been emphasizing this whole time, controlling yourself, controlling your opponent, applying submissions in a controlled manner, then it's fine. But if they're looking at competing, then they have to understand how to do at least the ankle lock at a very basic level, because I'm not going to send somebody out in a competition ignorant to certain submissions that could be thrown at them because then we're just setting our students up for failure and for uh, the possibility of getting injured. Okay, and and I I feel like you've you've you touched on this and answered this before, but how do you deal with how do you deal with schizo students? Because everything everything works with not obedient, but you know, open minded and you know, students that can follow direction. It all falls apart when you know schizo white belt locks on a heel hook. And takes it home, you know. Once again, we've almost we've never had an injury from a heel hook. Uh, the only injury would actually be myself, where I had my ankle like uh, explode one time, and uh, because as a black belt or a brown belt at the time, I was just in it purposely for a very long time. So it was more of an educated slash slightly uneducated decision where it ended up getting hurt. But for lower students, I've never had them get injured because of that culture that we have developed in the gym, which is like the big point that always grounds everybody the odd time that we've had students and it's not been leg lock centric it's been more sparring centric where they're just spazzy white belts or uh one time we had a really big strong guy that had a wrestling background that just could not turn down the pace and was just hurting people obviously there has to be difficult conversations had where we have to step in as instructors and actually lay the law down and explain to a student what's going on because there's a difference first between the first injury occurring with one student because accidents happen. I think we've all can say that we have injured somebody accidentally, but we've also been injured ourselves. That's the nature of the sport. It happens, still happens, but does it happen again? And what is the frequency of that? If it's six months in between two different injuries from this one student, then it might just be a, a little talk to just investigate what happened. Maybe there's nothing to do with it. Accidents happen, but if it's happening frequently, we have to have that conversation and we have to, we have had students in the past that we have told them that they're not allowed to train with say women or people smaller than them. We've had people that we've told that they're not allowed to train with anyone under blue belt or purple belt. And we have had, I think only one guy that we have told that he has to leave where uh, we uh, safety is the most important thing for the students uh, from a business perspective, but also for our own development, having training partners, we can't be breaking the toys that we're playing with. So we got to look out for each other. And 
so we will restrict students instruction or uh, what they can learn or who they can spar with or who they have to be kind of supervised by. They can only attend classes if it's with Rob because Rob is just keeping a fucking super close eye on them and will just shred this person alive if they do something incorrectly. And yeah, we will kick a student out if they are not a good match for the club. Which Has is there, what's, what's the pushback been when you've restricted people? Like say, you know, you're not, not, allowed, you're not allowed to train with smaller people. You're not allowed to train with anybody. Not once, because once again, it's a, it's a conversation that has to be had. Usually even the idiots that we've dealt with, they feel bad. Well, I've never had like a psychopath in the club that like, okay, like gets this. an erection from hurting people. They always feel bad. So they understand the need for it at that point, because we have like, Hey, here's two people that just got injured from you. Do you understand that? Yes. Okay. This is why. And we explain it from uh, a perspective of like safety of the students and still trying to be mindful of their own development. Like we're still giving them the ability to train with us, but they have to understand that it was wrong and that they, there's going to be consequences for that. And Rob can be a little more brash with that, but it still explains rationally what why the reason is so it still goes over well for me as a corrections officer i can definitely have a much more uh professional conflict management approach to that and so i can get them to see the reason to that and understand and try not to make them feel too bad about their decision but understand that there is still the need for some consequence to that and we've never had pushback and if they were to push back at that point we would just kick them out like at that point like if i can explain reasonably why somebody has to have their training dialed back because they just hurt like two people, like one woman and one person that weighs 40 pounds, one man that weighs 40 pounds less than them and how they're going too hard. And they're like, no, I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. Then I'm just gonna be like, then you're an idiot and you can, you're never going to come back to this gym. Like, yeah, we're not, I don't see, I've, I've never experienced people pushing back like that. But the one guy that we had to tell that he wasn't allowed back was just like, Hey man, this just isn't working, whether it's because you're just so big and strong or you are actually kind of stupid and you can't find a way to dial that back, obviously explain it in a much nicer way. But it's like there is something that is stopping you from being able to fit well with the club. And you can still see that you have injured like four people at this point over the last like however many months. I think it was like three people in three months. So it was still too high. Uh, where it's just like we this is just not working. And it's just kind of like a hang your head in shame. They walk away from that, but they can still understand because there is still the the rationale behind that decision and the evidence of their wrongdoing. So uh, as long as you have conversations with people and you can explain uh, with rational authority, I find people are understanding of the decisions. It's interesting. I noticed you use the word club for your school. Uh, yeah. Is there, is that, a specific choice of word or is that just what kind of did it start as a club and then it became like a, a commercialized business and or is just uh, i mean because obviously like a lot yeah you know we we i call the place our gym, place the gym i've heard we it call the gym too the academy you know like i mean honestly all those terms usually just get used interchangeably i call it the gym a lot i call it club a lot uh it is a uh a fun athletic practice spot for us. And so, um, I think even some of the people use this term school, it's not something that we're super locked down on. Uh, we're very laid back with our approach to everything. And so besides us having 
extremely regimented hygiene practices to make sure that people do not go off the mat with bare feet and that we clean the mats all the time and that we uh, try our best to say hi to everybody when we show up to training. We really don't have like any of the traditional martial arts kind of crap like that because we see a I lot also of noticed you, call um, to you. You use the word uh, growth mindset a lot. Is that something that Rob has impressed on you guys or is that something that's a Rory thing? No, I mean, it's just when we're talking about uh, the, the two different mindsets, like growth mindset and fixed mindset, there's, uh, I can't remember her, I'm pretty sure it was a woman that came up with the two terms, that when we're looking at like cognitive learning strategies and uh, different ways that people learn, those were the two terms that uh, uh, she had laid out. And so that's just something that we talk about a lot because that is, uh, jujitsu is one of the, the coolest things that people are learning where we see that growth mindset where people have to come in they have to understand that they are uncomfortable they are learning a totally new skill that they are going to lose consistently and that they are going to be getting feedback over and over again on how a constructive feedback in the sense of what they have to improve more so than like anything i can think of off on the top of my head that it never stops and so if you don't have that growth mindset then they're going to their ego is going to hurt. And as I'm sure you guys have seen, we've had young guys that come in for one day, get their ass kicked, and then they never come back. We've had people that just react poorly, like even upper belts as they've come and train with us, where we tell them that how they're doing the technique is not the best way, the most optimal. And we try and correct it. And we do so in a very professional way, but also explaining that whatever they're doing wasn't, isn't that great. And they react poorly to it. And so there's different levels of ego at different stages that, um, yeah, the fixed and growth mindset, just stealing it from people more accomplished than us. So, so Rory, we, we've gone almost an hour and a half and I, and I really appreciate the time you've shared with us. Um, as we start to wind down, um, I did want to touch on one thing um, before closing out. And, and that is recently you've been posting a lot of YouTube videos and, and, and mistake, correct me if I'm wrong, you're actually putting together curriculum if you haven't already. Um, for teaching um, jujitsu and self-defense techniques for medical professionals. Yes. Um, why is that an important subject to you, and why did you? Why are you addressing it? So I worked at the uh, a hospital in Nanaimo, the Nanaimo Regional General Hospital, for about three years as protection services. So uh, just basically in-house security for the hospital. And man, hospital was the most violent place I've ever worked. Way more violent than the jail I work at. Uh, we dealt with patients in the psychiatric ward, the psychiatric emergency services, psychiatric intensive care, the emergency department, and a lot of dealings with elderly patients with dementia, unfortunately. And I saw a lot of healthcare staff getting hurt. And I saw a lack of training to show them how they can work with patients in a healthcare setting because regular self-defense is too harsh. It's not just like this. It's either your life or their life, and you got to hit them in the nose to distract them. And stuff Very boss root. Two eyes hit. for an eye. <laughs> you can't hit the 98-year-old man that's bedridden and just because he's freaking out. And uh, so we can't escalate to that level of force. But then usually uh, organizations are hesitant to try and teach them stuff because one, there's that uh, negative connotation behind most self-defense moves, just not being appropriate for a healthcare setting. And also, as soon as they start to allow a justifiable level of force that they encourage, then there's also that risk of injuries to the patient. And once we start to focus on the idea of patient care 
then that really is what takes priority over everything else. Like uh, they are looking for that patient to be safe more so than their employees. While they'll, they'll say that both need to be kept safe, employees and patients, um, people get really upset, the families, the patients, and it's heavily scrutinized if you have a patient at a hospital that gets hurt with excessive force in some way. It doesn't really line up. There's questions that need to be answered. So I wanted to take the conceptual approach that I've learned from Rob, as well as my time in the healthcare setting on how we can just look at alignment and basic body positioning and distance control and stuff like that. So that someone that's never even thought about use of force or fighting, which a lot of people in healthcare didn't, they got into healthcare for the purposes of caring for individuals, not fighting individuals. So I try to create this course with the idea of like, say someone like a 40 year old nurse some mom that just loves her kids and taking care of people and she's never interested in taking a karate class or jiu-jitsu class. How do I make this interesting? How do I give them understanding of what like the, the concepts are behind combat and what they have to understand, but then how can they use like body positioning angles, leverage and uh, frames to be able to control patients if they had to in a safe way that minimizes the chance of them being injured, but also doesn't use any kind of uh, pain compliance or damaging force on the patient. Because if you have a 98 year old man that's got dementia and he has soiled himself in bed, while we're not trained to do that, I still had to do that every day with healthcare staff. And we find a way to do it as a group because you can't just leave the guy sitting there in his own filth. We have a duty to the patients to take care of them. So the goal is just to go through different, uh, concepts that they're going to be able to use to problem solve the different medical procedures that they're going to have to carry out with patients and be able to do so safely. So it was a important passion project that I haven't seen taught really at all for people. Dude, that's awesome. That's, yeah, that's that's really awesome. I mean, like, do you um? So you're using purely experience. Are you working directly with like a doctor? who you know or, or i have even, once uh, like a lawyer even because like hey this this might be crossing the line like that sort of thing no because i mean it's the same use of force rules like it's going to be dependent on your country and your state uh, when we're looking at like excessive force but uh or like the policies of the provider that you're working for so that's the thing that people have to be mindful of but uh when we're looking at like how i'm trying to teach this the goal is to not injure the patient in any kind of way. And if we're looking at like going into like the, the highest level where we're looking at an assaultive patient who's standing, then I'm still trying to just show them techniques to get the hell out of there. And if we're looking at grab disengagements, hair pulls, biting, how to prevent it, how to get out of there, but doing so without distracting techniques, like having to hit the patient. I mean, if a patient grabs you in a way that puts your life in danger, the same rules apply where you have to use a reasonable amount of force to defend yourself. And if you have to unfortunately break a patient's nose with a distraction strike, like a palm strike to the face to free yourself out of there because you felt your life was in danger, you have to do that. And that's still, uh, depending on where you are, like in Canada, that is still legal force, but it's still, that sucks. And you're still going to be scrutinized for it. And uh, someone I worked with got charged with excessive force, but was uh, acquitted for it, but still had the stress of having to deal with that litigation. So the goal is to pull it back to a point where we can still do it in a very controlled manner and keep everybody safe, 
but do so at the level that it shouldn't even be uh, anything more than having to do some use of force reporting for the job, but it should never reach uh, actual like lawyers or pissing off the family and stuff like that. We're trying to do jujitsu techniques with a, a, a higher level of care and concern uh, to keep everyone safe. Very cool, man. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, last question. Always a fun one. Any good white belt stories? Either From, involving you as a white belt or other white, whatever. There's a white belt involved. Any any good white belt stories? Oh my god, it's been so long since I've been a white belt. Now that I forget that stuff, or any, uh, any that you're instructing right now that you want to name names about. Yeah, I don't I don't get to teach uh, people as much anymore. But for me, it was just uh, as we cycle back to that growth mindset. Just being a white belt. Uh, in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, uh, even though I had trained submission grappling for about four years before I trained with no, Rob. No, dude, you I, do Canadian Jiu-Jitsu, man. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, or universal a, Jiu-Jitsu. Yeah, thinking that I was quite good and then just getting my ass kicked uh, where like me and this other guy, he was a blue belt and I was a four-stripe white belt underneath him. And we were probably about the best grapplers in Nanaimo, which was like not saying anything. Uh, like that was a very low level, but... I could beat up most of the guys that I grappled with and then training with Rob for the first time. And Rob just smeared me into the dirt so badly uh, that it was just like one of those, like it's a meme that's been going around a lot lately where it's like the, one of those days where you just drive back home after the gym with no music on and you're just like, <laughs> Holy fuck. Uh, and so that's what really just like opened my eyes up to this next level of jujitsu. And honestly, I can say almost the same thing again uh, as a, when I was a brown belt and I had rolled with Kyotera last that then he did a similar thing to me where I was like, here I was as a brown belt on a Rob Bernacki and I felt pretty confident. And then that next level, again, we're training with a uh, 10 or 11 time world champion. I can't remember what Kyle's at now and weighing like 50 pounds less than me. And once again, just beating the shit out of me. I can't make anything work on him submitting me multiple times in a round as if I had never trained jujitsu again in my life. Um, yeah. Just referencing back, that's always just like for me as a white belt where it's like, yeah, that day I got my ass kicked horribly, that completely changed my trajectory of what I, I was learning in jiu-jitsu and how I dedicated myself to the sport. So you think it's – it's you think it's um, – because some people would argue that getting mauled as a, as a white belt is maybe not the most constructive thing an upper belt can do not for always. a white belt. So, it depends. It really depends on the student. So if I have somebody that is more timid, uh, lacks some confidence, then obviously I'm going to be a little more careful on how I develop that person. I want them to experience some success before they experience that failure versus someone like myself, whether it was my first time going into class when I was 19 training with some uh, kid at a totally different academy like four years before I trained with Rob where I was just this 19 year old that worked out a lot and I had an ego and I wanted to go in there and I thought I was going to have more success than I actually did. It was important for me to get my ass kicked because then I felt that vulnerability and I never wanted to feel that again. And so there's a reading of uh, the person that you're dealing with. And so sometimes it's more important to nurture that person and help them build. And some people you need to break those walls down first so that they can develop that growth mindset and see that this shit actually works. That, Regardless that that man fought as hard as he could, this woman that was 50 pounds less than him submitted him and emasculated yeah. him in his head like that. <laughs> so then he can go, these people know what the fuck they're talking about and I want to learn from them. And that's what Rob did to me. I wasn't a white, uh, like I wasn't a new white belt. I had trained for multiple years 
And so it was important for Rob to not just be like this uh, Mr. Miyagi off on the side and just be like, hey, just trust me and listen to everything I said. Rob beat the shit out of me first and was a similar build to me. So I was able to go, okay, this guy is leagues above me. And so I don't see a ceiling for which I, I, I would hit training with this guy and I want to learn from him. And so not every instructor can do that. And certainly as you get like older, you're going to have students that will be taking that role of the smashing over for you. But that's what I love about Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is that there's no lying on the mats and you get to actually have that live sparring. And I think that is important. And sometimes students, usually bullheaded young men, need that beat down more than others. And now I wonder, like you, you using the um, the Rob uh, story there, like how much of that was his reaction to your approach walking in? Like, you know. Right? Yeah, yeah I don't know. Like, I, uh, I can't imagine he does it to everybody who enters yep. his gym, you know, like. Yeah. Uh, well, there are certainly like for Rob, he had come in and he was opening a school for the first time where we already had the one jujitsu school established. Uh, and then there was another like little garage that, uh, some of us trained in. And so with that, we had an existing student base in the community. And so there's obviously like a, a, a point, like if you go and you're opening a gym that you have to, you have to understand that everyone is going to be talking about their roles with you afterwards at the other schools. And so it's like an even higher level of like importance that you get in there and you, set a high standard set. No one's like, Oh yeah, well I subbed the black belt when he just came in. I guess he's not legit. It's like, no, Rob had to be on a, uh, a different playing field to make sure that he had dominated all of us, which he was able to easily because we all sucked. Uh, so that then we only talked highly about him. I know some people feel the same way about seminars too, where they'll be like, I'll never let students submit me at a seminar because they're going to come at the instructor with a target more on their back. And if they let these students have, those little wins that might be taken out of context and people might be just shit talking or uh, getting a false sense of security or confidence from that building the false positives. We're like, Oh, I managed to submit Tom to blast. And it's like, no, because like Tom was the last post I think I read where he's like, I don't ever let people submit me in uh, seminars because that kind of stuff does happen. So unfortunately there's politics to the game and uh, yeah, people can take stuff out of context that I'm sure Rob was just, going to be also more universally not allowing students for the first couple months have any success because he knew that that would be what was and did spread that uh, the word of mouth that when we went and trained backwards like hey did you go to island top team yesterday i did and i got my ass kicked and he's incredible you should go check it out and so that starts to snowball like that so um just in those 12 years that you've been doing jujitsu uh have you noticed any major shift? Like this is something I definitely hear when I speak to guys that trained in the late nineties, obviously things have evolved, but just for the, you know, 12 odd years that you've been training, anything comes to mind as a shift in jujitsu from when you started to now. The leg lock shift was the biggest thing. Uh, what the Dan and her desk squad guys were doing with leg locks, taking it to a new level of systematic control and breaking mechanics uh, that was a huge shift. Rob managed to get a whole bunch of crazy information from Eddie Cummings doing private lessons with him for a week, years and years ago. And that gave us a huge leg up, like in our local community where people weren't even close to being able to, uh, have any kind of level of knowledge on comparison to ours, because we got just straight from the source and people were still so hesitant to train with heel hooks because it was the same for me. When I first started 12 years ago, I was like, Hey, I'm never training heel hooks. Because that shit is the devil. 
it's going to destroy my knees. Uh, there was just such a mysticism behind it uh, that people just didn't understand. And with, through that ignorance came fear that now as we've seen the Dan or Death Squad guys just kill everybody with leg locks, we've now seen everybody jumping on board that they need to learn leg locks. And the advancements that we've made in the last five years in leg locks is incomparable to all the years of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu before that. Like all the break mechanics for anything like five, ten years ago was garbage. If you look at how to finish an ankle lock or a toe hold or um, I mean a knee bar is mostly the same, but there's still rotational base elements that people have added into it now to make it better. But especially the heel hook, old style of just trying to reef that heel hook across the body with poor control of the knee. That was why people got hurt. And that's where like if I showed you an arm bar and was just like, hey, just grab their arm and you have your knees open, you're just gonna reef it until it eventually breaks over your hip. <laughs> then people are going to be like, holy shit, arm bars are dangerous as hell. Don't do arm bars. That was kind of how low-level heel hooks were done, where people just grabbed it and ripped it. But now that people understand the importance of controlling the hip and a wedge of the knee and accessing the lever and getting proper inversion of the ankle and how the ankle probably will blow out usually before the knee, depending on the type of heel hook and how they can apply that safely, uh, this is where I don't experience my white belt's getting injured playing with heel hooks. I don't experience us getting injured. We're not seeing um, the only injuries we're seeing from heel hooks at a high level is because people refuse to tap them in time, which we see arguably the same injuries when it comes to arm bars and Kimuras, et cetera, because obviously there's just more on the line and people are making a educated decision of just looking at the risk and going, ah, I'm going to let this go as long as it can, or even let it go to try and win at a, on this high level. So yeah, leg locks has been just a crazy shift and the people that haven't kept up with it, as we've seen now with uh, IBGGF now allowing it, people are having to uh, adjust and those that won't will just be left behind competitively. So uh, Rory, where can people find you on the internet and is there anything you'd like to promote because the, fl the floor is yours? Awesome. Um, well, RVVBJJ is my YouTube channel, my Facebook, my Instagram. Um, and that's where like I'm trying to on YouTube is where I'm trying to put out the best content I can to learn from. But if you're interested in any of my personal stuff, then that will be Facebook and Instagram. I work with my instructor, Rob Bernacki on BJJconcepts.net, where we have our entire curriculum for the school. And we have pedagogy material trying to teach people how to become better instructors, doing all this stuff that we've been talking about, going into cognitive learning strategies, developing a curriculum, how to communicate, how to problem solve, how to address bad students, some of the stuff that we've been talking about. Uh, because like I said, pedagogy is its own skill in its own self. So it's like that's a whole different section for people to learn from. And uh, I'm doing online courses on a separate little website. I'm about to release a Mantis Guard instructional, but I have the healthcare instructional on there, uh, which also, if you look up RVV BGJ, then you'll see like the healthcare control strategies and self-defense. So if you Google my name, uh, you can find most of that information out now. Awesome. Well, Rory, thank you so much for your time. It was a real pleasure and speedy recovery with your elbow. Thank you so much, guys. I've been so bored at home. It was a pleasure to talk to somebody. Awesome. All right, right thanks, on. Thanks, man. Cheers, guys.